Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 12th. On today's show, I'm going to talk about some changes that Facebook implemented last week regarding how misinformation, particularly medical misinformation, misinformation about the anti-vaccination movement spreads on the social network, where for years, anti-vax activists have built thriving, sprawling online communities with tens of thousands of participants that have only grown and grown. And it seems like just now the company is really taking the threat of this type of spread of misinformation very seriously. I'll be talking about that and kind of what it means that Facebook is taking it seriously now. And then my co-host, Will, is going to be interviewing Olivia Salon from NBC about a recent investigation she did on how facial recognition companies might be using your image without your consent. And the important thing to note here is that facial recognition isn't just something that Facebook might be doing without your consent sometimes. Or maybe you gave consent not knowingly in some sort of terms of service agreement. But it's also something that is creeping more and more into the physical world as companies that have security cameras, you know, mounted in rooms and in stores uh, start to install facial recognition technology into those cameras as well and use it in all kinds of unforeseen ways, perhaps to remember you when you walk in or to pull up other data that they can find on you by knowing who you are by analyzing your face. He'll get into that with Olivia, and it should be a super interesting conversation. And also, one more thing for people who are in a much colder place than I am, if you are in the D.C. area, on March 20th, Future Tense will be hosting a happy hour event in D.C. on law enforcement and genetic genealogy. It's the technique that uses information from consumer DNA tests to crack cold cases. Guests include Jason Moon, the host of the podcast Bear Brook, which delves into genetic genealogy and the controversies around it. To sign up or get more information, go to slate.com slash live. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So on the anti-vax beat, parents who don't believe in vaccinating their children tend to find each other. And one place they do it is Facebook, which until Thursday was really, really easy to do on Facebook. Last month, The Guardian found that all of the top 12 groups recommended when searching for vaccination are groups that advocate against parents getting their kids vaccinated. This led Adam Schiff, the Democratic chair of the House Intelligence Committee, to send a letter to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg asking that his company do something about it. So this week, or last Thursday, really, after years of providing a home for anti-vaxxers to thrive and spread their gospel about how, for example, the measles vaccine causes autism, which study after study has shown is not true, Facebook finally made a major move to counteract the growth of these medical misinformation communities. 
On Thursday, Facebook announced it will no longer allow advertisements that peddle misinformation about vaccines. The company also said it will make anti-vaccination groups and pages harder to find by moving them lower down in search results and tweaking people's news feeds to make these posts less prominent. Anti-vaccination groups, many of which have tens of thousands of members, will now also no longer be suggested by Facebook's Groups You Should Join feature. The move to curb misinformation and reduce the prominence of communities that spread misinformation about vaccines comes after the World Health Organization declared that vaccine hesitancy, which is defined as the reluctance or refusal to vaccinate despite the availability of vaccines, was in its top 10 threats to global health in 2019. It also comes on the heels of Pinterest taking further action to reduce the spread of anti-vaccination misinformation on its site by blacklisting certain search terms that relate to vaccines. This move shows that, in some ways, Facebook's approach to taking responsibility for dangerous uses of its platform is evolving in encouraging ways. On the other hand, it should make us ask again, what took Facebook so long? It should come as no surprise that the homespun groups on Facebook that are anti-vaccination rise to prominence on the site. People who believe in a strain of thought that's not popular or a kind of thinking that's conspiratorial, they're often left to create their own media and their own communities to support their theories. Whereas people who believe in vaccines and that they do work have less reason to create these kinds of communities, since, after all, the entire medical world agrees with them and getting vaccinated is required. People who believe in vaccines don't have a need to really convince other people that vaccines work. It's the same reason why there's more flat earth videos than round earth videos on YouTube. If you believe the earth is round, you probably are not compelled to make a video about it. And so what should Facebook do? Banning these groups will likely be read as censorship. Downranking them in search results makes sense, sure, but it doesn't make the information disappear, and the problem now seems to be more that the groups that peddle in misinformation about vaccines already exist, and people who are interested can be invited to join by others in their friend circles they trust. Whatever the solution, that Facebook is only dealing with this now, after it's become a horrendous problem, is telling. For one, it shows that the company hasn't been doing much about the information health of the communities that thrive on its platform and perhaps hasn't been doing much for years, which has allowed these groups to grow and grow. The company might be reticent to deplatform these groups altogether or kick them off the site or shut them down. And who knows if that's even the answer. But we know that deplatforming does lessen the influence of people who spread hate online. We've seen it work. It might lessen the spread of those who spread dangerous medical misinformation, too. When we come back, my co-host Will will be talking to Olivia Salon, editor of Tech Investigations at NBC, about facial recognition technology and how companies might be using your online photos without your permission. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Olivia Solon, editor of Tech Investigations at NBC. She just released a piece called Facial Recognition's Dirty Little Secret, Millions of Online Photos Scraped Without Consent. You can read her piece on NBCNews.com. We're excited to have her on If Then. Olivia Solon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're in sort of a boom period for face recognition, where this technology that used to be kind of experimental and sounded kind of sci-fi is becoming a reality, and not only at the top tech companies, but organizations of all kinds. There are some really big questions around the ethics of face recognition, which we'll get into it in a minute. But first, let's dive into what you reported for NBC News. You found that companies such as IBM are using photos of people's faces, sometimes without their consent, that they find online and using those to train their algorithms. Is that right? That's correct. Um, They are arguing that some of them have certain types of consent models and we can talk about that um, in with regards to IBM's data set and the Creative Commons licensing Um, but on the whole yes there are a bunch of researchers and companies that are taking photos from the web of members of the public without their informed consent um, nor the informed consent of the people who've taken the photos. All right so let's back up for a second and think about why they would be doing this. So on January 29th IBM published somewhat proudly, it seemed, on their research blog that they had a new data set, a diversity in faces data set to advance the study of fairness in facial recognition systems. Um, Why is it important to have a diversity of faces in your data set for face recognition? So one of the problems with facial recognition is that it's traditionally been much better at identifying white men than it has uh, people of color, particularly black women, for example. And and this comes down to the data sets that are used to train the facial recognition algorithms, which again have traditionally been very white and very male. Um, and, And this is partly because when researchers first built training data sets, they would actually pay volunteers to come into the lab, um, get them to sign a consent form, kind of like as you do with regular um, research on volunteers, and then take a bunch of photos from different angles, um, you know, in different lighting conditions. And often those volunteers would be students in the computer science department of universities, and they typically skewed male and white. So what this means is that a lot of these uh, these tools are actually quite bad at accurately identifying darker um, faces, um, female faces. And so IBM was trying to solve this problem, um, which in the real world can mean that people are wrongly identified by police as suspect, as criminal suspects, for example. Right, because law enforcement is one of the groups that's using face recognition technologies. Um, so what data set did... IBM use and why did that turn out to be problematic based on your reporting? So I don't know if you ever used Flickr, but I certainly uploaded a bunch of photos there probably about 10 years ago. I haven't really looked at them since. 
And at the time, you could publish pictures under something called a Creative Commons license. Um, this was just a way of allowing other people, other bloggers, to use your photos on their websites without having to get, you know, pay you a license fee um, or even to seek out your explicit permission. Ten years on, and I don't know, I always felt uncomfortable with the idea of my photos, the photos of my friends and family um, being used to train a facial recognition algorithm. I just don't think that the the permission that you, you may have granted under these licenses 10 years ago really applies in this context or, you know, has means that you have given any kind of informed consent for this type of use. So that's what I thought was problematic about it. I mean, I think IBM can argue that people, the photographers have given consent from a copyright perspective, possibly using these licenses, but certainly the subjects of the photos have not given their informed consent to have their biometric data extracted from photos. Um, and I think there are possible legal avenues for people featured in those photos, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. Right. So maybe people put this Creative Commons license on their Flickr photos a decade ago thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if somebody put my photo in a blog post and, and credited me for it? And it was a value somehow. Maybe they didn't expect that the, the subjects of those photos could be used to train law enforcement surveillance uh, mechanisms. And certainly, as you said, the subjects probably didn't expect that. Did you talk to some of the people who either took the pictures or were the subjects of the pictures and, and see what they thought? Yeah, so that was part of a significant part of the reporting was going back to the photographers who's um, who had lots of photos in that data set, um, which we were able to do by acquiring a, a copy of the data set. Um, IBM wouldn't actually give it to us because they said it was for researchers only, but um, someone leaked it to us. And then we went through and found people who had hundreds of photos in there and just asked them how they felt about it, you know, and um I'd say it was uh, the majority were unhappy about it. They did not think this was how their photos would be used. They did not think that the people in the photos would want their pictures used in this way. But I would say that, uh, you know, it was it wasn't a huge majority. And there was still probably about 40 percent. I mean, I say 40 percent. It was a small sample. It was about 12 people. I think we contacted. But um said that they were fine with it. They were happy to improve facial recognition technology. And and what this shows to me is that some people would have consented if they'd been asked, um, but IBM just didn't ask, nor did Flickr um, or anyone else involved. So is there a consensus about what would be a better way for companies to improve the diversity of faces in their data sets without maybe using photos of people without their consent or who, or who never imagined their photos being used in this way? Well, I think you kind of just answered the question um, in the way that you phrased it, by getting people's consent. I think if you stated publicly, we want to create a more diverse facial recognition data set, are you happy to contribute your face or your photos? Um, if you are, please do so here. That would constitute truly informed consent about how those photos would be used. And it seems as though from my conversations with, with photographers, some people would do that. It would be harder. It would be more expensive. It would be more of a pain than just like grabbing a bunch of photos from Creative Commons. But I just think that was the only way to do this in a, in a way that ha where you have meaningful informed consent. Right. So just because we're calling on IBM and other companies to make their facial recognition systems fairer doesn't mean that it 
it necessarily has to be easy for them to do so, right? But you talked to some people who, who in fact, tried to opt out. Right now, it's an opt-out model. And they found that that was, IBM did not make it easy to do that. Although I think IBM told you that, that they had completed all those requests. <laughs> well, okay, so this is where we got into this weird um, labyrinthine process whereby, you know, we, we would alert people to the fact that their photos were in this data set and say, and, and IBM says it has an opt-out mechanism. You just have to email one of the researchers and they'll take your photo out. So they were like, cool. So they email them and say, I know that my photos are in your data set. And IBM would reply, well, we need the specific links to the photo. And so we, NBC, was able to give those people a, a handful of links. We gave them like four or five to prove that we knew that their photos were in there. But IBM doesn't make there's no way for a member of the public to search for themselves through IBM to know if their Flickr ID is incorporated into their data set. They need the specific links. And so we have developed a tool that allows you to search to see if your username is in there. But but without the specific links to photos, you can't get them removed. They will not remove all, you know, if you have 700 photos in the data set, they won't remove them all on the basis of your Flickr user ID. They will only remove it when you have the link to the exact picture, which is a strange opt-out mechanism, in my opinion. So IBM doesn't think they did anything wrong and they don't plan to change this practice? As far as I can tell, in all the communications I've had with them, you know, they look at this as uh, a noble pursuit in eliminating bias in facial recognition technology, which I agree from a scientific standpoint is a good thing. Um, I think the problem is that when you think about how facial recognition technology is used in the real world, um, we have not eliminated the societal and historical biases that exist that mean that certain communities are disproportionately targeted by this technology. And so you, it's, it's naive, I think, for researchers to think of themselves as existing outside of that context, particularly when IBM's commercial arm is selling facial recognition tools to police. Right. So that's somewhat of an open question, I think, among civil rights advocates is, do we really want companies to make face recognition algorithms more accurate um, and, and more accurate for, for instance, communities of color? Or is that maybe not such a good thing if that means that they will be then used against communities of color in, in you know, biased policing practices or that sort of thing? There was also a report by uh, BuzzFeed recently that said the U.S. government will be scanning the faces of international travelers at 20 airports. Um, there's now some pushback from a few senators who want Homeland Security to pause this program. But it seems like, in general, the use of face recognition for surveillance is really growing right now. Does IBM have a role in, in surveillance-related face recognition applications? So IBM certainly has... Um facial recognition tools that it sells commercially and it has a, a long-standing deal with NYPD um, where it's been selling facial recognition technology not necessarily to identify named individuals but certainly to search for people based on things like skin tone and ethnicity um, which again can be used to obviously target people in ways that are incredibly discriminatory. Um, 
I don't know in terms of the broader applications. I mean, they have their IBM Watson visual recognition tool, which they sell to a variety of customers. And we and we know that IBM has long-standing relationships with law enforcement and government agencies. So I wouldn't be surprised. There are some companies, including Microsoft, that have actually come out and called explicitly for the government to step in and regulate face recognition. We also talked to on the show several months ago, Brian Brackeen, who runs a face recognition company who believes that face recognition is not ready for use in surveillance. But at the moment, it seems like there's not a lot of regulation around face recognition, at least in the United States. Do you see much momentum for regulation at this point? I mean, not a huge amount of momentum. There certainly are um, elements of the general data protection regulation in Europe, GDPR, that cover off um, photos of people's faces and the biometric data contained within them. There's also a law in Illinois um, that's a biometric data privacy law that hasn't been rigorously tested in the courts, but um, does also consider the biometric data that you extract from photos of people's faces to be considered um, personal data that it requires informed consent to use. But yeah, it's neither of these laws have been tested fully. I don't know if anyone has sort of successfully uh, held a company to account for using their data in this way. But at the same time, this technology is advancing so rapidly. Um, I, I really think this needs to be made a priority. Yeah, I know Amazon employees spoke up against their companies recognition with a K, recognition system. That's a face recognition system that Amazon has been developing and has licensed to government and law enforcement agencies. It seemed like Amazon did not back down from that. Um, So the companies developing these systems seem to really feel that there is a potential significant business for them in the future. It feels a little bit like we're at a tipping point. Like if if it goes a whole lot further, there's not going to be there's not going to be any coming back from this, and, and face recognition will just be woven into to our lives. Um, do you think we're already there? I I hate to be too pessimistic, but after doing this story, I really feel like it's almost pointless to try and opt out of these systems at this point. Your photos are highly likely to be incorporated into them, whether it's through the DMV database or the you know the passport control, or whether it's someone some researcher making some fun dating app who just happened to scrape a bunch of pictures from Facebook in the in the mid two thousands. Like it's. I don't know, I felt really disheartened the more I dug into this and particularly when I tried to speak to researchers who were building these data sets, it just seemed like it hadn't even occurred to them that this might be in some way invasive of people's privacy. And it seems to have just been this, as I said in the headline, this this huge like dirty little secret of the training sets used for facial recognition technology. Olivia Solon of NBC, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thanks for having me. All right, one last break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. I'm going to do it solo this week. And the tab I have for you is a Twitter thread from Joshua Benton. Joshua Benton runs the Neiman Lab for Journalism at Harvard. It's one of those multi-part Twitter threads that takes a twist in the middle and ends up someplace you didn't expect based on the first tweet. So the first tweet, though, just so you can find it, is in March 2008, Brian Stelter wrote a story for New York Times about how young people were getting news online. It's a pretty straightforward story, but there's one quote in it that still has an impact on debates about digital journalism today. That quote came from a college student at the time. Remember, this was 2008. And this college student was a participant in a focus group that was organized by one Jane Buckingham. She was the founder of a market research company called The Intelligence Group. The quote was, if the news is that important, it will find me. So this is the type of quote that we would expect Josh Benton of the Neiman Lab for Journalism to pontificate about. Uh, It has been uh, sort of at the center of the shift over the past 11 years from people subscribing to a newspaper or a magazine and then reading it as a habit versus people getting the news sort of as it comes, whether a push notification or whether their friend shares it on Facebook or somebody they happen to follow on Twitter shares it there. Well, it turns out that Jane Buckingham, the person who ran the focus group in which this quote surfaced, was part of another news story this week. That news story was the FBI fraud investigation that turned up 50 charges against people uh, who were involved in an elaborate scheme to get their kids into elite universities. turns out that the woman who had convened this focus group about how young people get their news in 2008 was one of the people indicted here. She apparently paid somebody, allegedly paid somebody to take the ACT test for her kids. Uh, So Benton wraps up his threads by saying he doesn't have any grand philosophical conclusions here, but he did invite his followers to come up with a kicker to the story. And the consensus was that the kicker should be the news found her.
All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Aremus. Thanks again to our guest, Olivia Salon. You can find her on Twitter at Olivia Salon, and you can read her story at NBCNews.com. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks, Cameron. And thanks to the J School here in Berkeley. We'll see you next week.